Napoleon, the man, the myth, the legend, the tomb. Join us as we explore the giant tomb built for the supposedly tiny emperor. Welcome to this episode of Paris Gone By, the Parisian history podcast for the curious traveler. I'm Michelle, your host and guide to the Paris of the past and seasonal allergy sufferer again, so I apologize if my voice kind of comes and goes here. Today we'll explore some of the history behind Napoleon's magnificent tomb at Les Invalides. Like the Eiffel on the Eiffel Tower episode, the idea for this one came from my brother who is sort of my one-man market research team right now as the vlog and the podcast develop. If you do have a topic that you'd like to know more about, send me a message on the website or on Instagram. The links are in the show notes. Before we dive into his death and how he ended up in his tomb, and if he's actually there, let's take a look at Napoleon Bonaparte in life. We're going for the super Cliff Notes version here, not the novel version, so hold on tight. Here we go. So Baby Bonaparte, actually Napoleone Bonaparte, was born August 15th, 1769 to Charles and Letizia Bonaparte on the island of Corsica. They were minor nobility, but quite poor, actually. Corsica had just come under French rule, and the Corsicans were considered second-class citizens in the complex social structure of the Ancien Regime. All of this, of course, would influence Napoleon's worldview and who he supported as the revolution came calling later. Due to his family's nobility, you know, as minor as it was, he was able to work his way into the École Militaire in Paris, and actually in this case being poor nobility helped because the original purpose of the École Militaire was for poor nobility who couldn't afford the traditional training. He graduated in 1785 at the tender age of 16 as a second lieutenant. That gorgeous 18th century building that we see today on the other side of the Champ de Mars from the Eiffel Tower is actually where Napoleon went to school, so kind of wave high when you walk by there. He spent the ensuing years in the army, though he did take leave to participate in a complicated Corsican rebellion that resulted in him supporting the French Revolution and rejoining the army. And as we know, the revolution was pretty good for Bonaparte, and he quickly moved up the ranks. But like most people, he had a bumpy ride as the revolution sort of consumed itself in the mid-1790s. However, he was able to get through it with his military reputation. It helped him win some key positions, and he was able to win some key battles, and he was back on track by 1796. He also married his first wife, Josephine de Bournay, around this time. After about four years of successful campaigns in Italy and Egypt primarily, Napoleon and his friends took advantage of that post-revolution political instability and opted for a good old coup d'etat by the end of 1799. This will not be our last coup d'etat, by the way. And voila, after the coup d'etat, Napoleon was now first consul or the head of the new French government. As first consul, he continued to fight his neighbors. To help pay for this, he actually sold the United States a giant chunk of real estate that we now call the Louisiana Purchase. 
And when the fighting paused for a bit due to some peace treaties, Napoleon actually reinstated slavery in the French Caribbean that had been abolished during the revolution in order to improve their economic output. It was not cool at the time, and it is still rightly viewed as a dark stain on Napoleon and France's reputations. Incredibly, in 1804, the French voted to have Napoleon made emperor. I don't think this gets much press in the English language histories. We're given this impression that Bonaparte just slapped a crown on his head and ran with it. But there is, of course, room to debate on how fair or honest the election was. The ballot process was public, which meant that your vote was known. And there weren't exactly a lot of alternative options, but still it seems kind of crazy. So basically, they voted to return to a monarchy just over a decade after executing the last king. Good for Napoleon, less good for Europe. And here we get into the Napoleonic Wars in earnest. Napoleon fought the imperial fight for the next decade, capturing huge swaths of territory across Europe. He discarded poor Josephine to marry a younger and hopefully fertile wife of royal blood, and he did end up having a son. He also ignored history and attempted to invade Russia. To say this went poorly is an understatement. The Russian campaign weakened his army and his standing in France and across the continent, and he was defeated in 1814. He was stripped of his title of emperor. France was forced back to its original revolutionary borders, and he was exiled to the Mediterranean island of Elba. But he was not content to go into forced retirement. Bonaparte escaped Elba in February of 1815, just a few months later, actually, and launched his 100-day comeback tour. Incredibly, an army supported him, and it took a coalition army under the British to finally put the emperor back in the box at the Battle of Waterloo. And this time, taking no chances, the British shipped the deposed again, redeposed, (laughs) Bonaparte off to the island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic for exile number two. At long last, in 1821, after about five years in exile in the middle of nowhere, Napoleon succumbed to an illness, which was possibly, probably cancer, less likely poisoning by the British or possibly accidental poisoning from arsenic-laced wallpaper. Regardless, the emperor had gone on to the great beyond. But his jailers now had to scramble to send him off in some sort of style. They had to move quickly. St. Helena isn't exactly the cold North Atlantic. He did have a brief public lying in state while everything was finalized, but he apparently was getting pretty funky rather quickly. So four days after his passing, he was taken in a funeral procession to an elaborately constructed tomb. He was laid to rest inside four coffins. First was tin, which was then inside a wooden coffin, mahogany, I believe, inside a lead coffin, and then inside a second lead coffin with possibly wood shavings between the two lead layers. He was then interred inside what one source described as, quote, a tomb lined with stone slabs situated three meters or about nine feet deep inside a brick-lined pit and sealed on top by a giant stone slab, which was then itself fixed in place by a layer of cement. And then the next day, a second covering of cement was laid and the grave was covered with two meters or about six feet of stones and clay 
and finally topped with three stone slabs. That was a lot. I think it's safe to say that the British were a wee bit paranoid that even in death, they would not be able to keep the emperor contained. Napoleon would then remain on the island for the next 19 years until French King Louis-Philippe decided to bring him home and rebury him at the Anvilides in 1840. And now we get down to the nitty-gritty. Because the Anvilides tomb story is drawn out across 20 years and several regime changes, I feel like we're better served with a highlights reel here in the form of six facts about Napoleon's tomb. But why six facts? Well, the first fact is that the tomb contains six layers, and I really like the symmetry of the number of layers and the number of facts. But also because it took an unexpected amount of research to sort out exactly how many layers there are and what those layers are made from. The English language sources are kind of all over the place, and I'm sorry to say that the other man, myth, and legend, Rick Steves, who I absolutely adore, does have this listed incorrectly in some of his guidebooks. He states seven layers, but he, or more likely his researchers, seem to be counting the box that Napoleon was shipped in from St. Helena to France, which did not actually accompany him into the tomb. So Rick, if you're looking for a researcher for French or English history, please drop me a line. What then are the correct six layers? According to the Musée de l'Armée, which manages Les Invalides, they are from the outside in Finnish red quartzite. Uh, This is the gigantic tomb that we see that's a gorgeous kind of reddish purple color. This stone was actually selected for its similarity to the red porphyry stone that was used in Roman imperial burials. So you can see this Roman influence all around the tomb and the ambulatory as well. They really played up the emperor concept. Inside that, we have an ebony layer. Then we have what we already know about, the two lead layers, the mahogany, and then the tin. And inside this final tin box is still Napoleon himself. He's dressed not in his own emperor's uniform, since he was no longer emperor, but his favorite uniform style, that of his mounted chasseurs of the imperial guard, or the soldiers that were on the horses. But why six layers? It's not to make up for his diminutive size, though I think we all joke about that. Historians actually believe that he was about 5'6 or 5'7, or the average height for his time. But he just surrounded himself with very tall imperial guards, who did affectionately call him Le Petit Corporal, or the Little Corporal. And back in the UK, the British press, who had a patriotic duty to make fun of Napoleon and hurt his reputation, ran with that Little Corporal bit, and now basically we only remember this one little thing about him. While there was no clear-cut why on the many layers, it seems to have been very common for the rich and powerful to be buried in multiple layers historically, and I suspect it has a few functions. One of them is to show the person's wealth and power in an age when the working classes were buried either in just a shroud or winding sheet or in a very basic wooden coffin. I think for Americans, we see those like wooden coffins in the Old West, right? So very basic burial materials. Two, perhaps, was the hope they would retain a whole physical body for the moment of thus the anticipated second coming when the righteous would again inhabit their bodies and walk the earth again. But this again is just my own 
semi-educated guess about this. If there are any funerary experts out there, let's chat. Fact number two, it took 19 years before the French wanted him back. After laying peacefully at rest on St. Helena for almost two decades, Bonaparte finally got his dying wish to be transported back to Paris and buried near the Seine. In May 1840, the then-king Louis-Philippe declared his intention to have his son, the Prince of Joinville or the Prince de Joinville, to go to the island and fetch him back home for the burial at Les Invalides. The British gave their consent to the plan, and the prince and a cohort of dignitaries headed off to the South Atlantic. With some ceremony, Napoleon was exhumed and examined. The examination was apparently very fast, perhaps only two minutes long, but it was recorded that Bonaparte's remains were in relatively good shape. He was then quickly sealed back up in all of his layers, which was then put in an ebony coffin that had been brought for this purpose that I mentioned before, and packed in a protective oak box, which caused the Rick Steves confusion, and he sailed back to Paris. While the expedition team was away, though, however, as usual, there was unrest back in Paris. Napoleon's nephew, the future Emperor Napoleon III, had attempted his second coup. So Napoleon's triumphant return had to be downgraded a little bit and carefully stage managed to prevent any pro-Bonapartist dynastic sentiment. So they're having to balance these competing forces, right? But they did pull off a nice procession that took Bonaparte under his now finally finished Arc de Triomphe on his way to Les Invalides. Victor Hugo wrote some poetic lines about the event, which took place on the bitterly cold 15th of December, 1840. Translated into English, we lose the rhyme a little bit, but it's still beautiful prose. Freezing sky, pure sunshine, oh, shine in history. A funereal triumph, imperial torch, may the people forever keep you in their memory. Day beautiful as glory, cold as the tomb. Hugo was quite the writer, wasn't he? Love that guy. Fact number three the choice of Les Invalides was both practical and political. So, why did Louis Philippe choose the Invalides and not the Pantheon or some other location? The reason, so far as I could tell, was that Louis Philippe was following through with Napoleon's plan to make the chapel Dome des Invalides inside the Invalides the final resting place of important military leaders. The first burial there was the reinterment of Henri de la Tour d'Auvergne, Vicomte de Touraine, who had been the Marshal of France or General under Louis XIV, and who Napoleon considered the greatest military leader in history. Interestingly, the Pantheon was at this point in Louis-Philippe's reign a mausoleum again for important French dead by his own decree, though he didn't add anyone to it and he kept the crypt with the previous Revolution-era interments private. Louis-Philippe was in a weird position as a king of a country with a bit of a history where kings were concerned, so he may have been trying to balance a, hey, I respect the original revolutionary dead concept with, but I really don't want you visiting them and getting any ideas in your head. It didn't really matter, though, because he ended up being deposed in 1848 in the Third French Revolution. He had actually been installed after the Second Revolution. Sick transit glory mundi, huh? 
I think Macron is on to something when he said that the French are regicidal monarchists, though pointing that out may not have been very politic. It seems also that Saint-Denis, the traditional final resting place of the French kings, was considered and rejected, possibly with too many ties to the Ancien Regime. And Notre Dame's restoration had not yet begun when Louis-Philippe decreed the return of Napoleon. There was also a reluctance in building a new structure that could have become a focal point for the Bonapartists or Bonapartists. So, inside Les Invalides it was. Fact number four. Napoleon was brought home by a Bourbon king and buried by his nephew, the new Emperor Napoleon. We already touched on the French king Louis-Philippe as the person who brought home Napoleon, but who also had a delicate balance to strike to keep his crown. He had to keep his own team royalists happy, not incite team republic, or more accurately team revolution, to any sort of action, and he had to keep smacking down repeated attempts by team Bonaparte to take back the crown. But who was this beleaguered king Louis-Philippe? Well, he technically was a Bourbon, but not of the Louis XVI line that had been ruling off and on since Napoleon was forced into retirement. Instead, he was a cousin from the cadet branch or junior line, who are called Orléans, who descend from Louis XIV's brother Philippe. As the senior Orléans male, Louis-Philippe was the Duc d'Orléans and the first prince of the blood, which made him in line for the French throne. The two previous Bourbon kings had been brothers of Louis XVI, actually, but in that second revolution of 1830, Bourbon Charles X was removed and his cousin Louis-Philippe was installed with a much more progressive form of monarchy than his predecessors. This, to me, feels like the Charles II's return and the restoration of the monarchy in England. He, you know, hey, we want you back as king, but you have a lot of restrictions. This is sort of the concept that's going on here. And yeah, that you heard that right. There was a revolution to install a different king from the same family they had deposed in the first revolution. It's best if you just roll with it now and definitely then. We remember this event best in the form of the famous Delacroix painting, Liberty Leading the People, with the bare-breasted Marianne carrying the French flag and leading what appears to be an armed mob. You know the painting I'm talking about. Louis-Philippe spent his reign trying and ultimately failing to balance all the disparate political factions that were battling for supremacy in France at the time. One of his attempts at appeasement was to bring home Napoleon Bonaparte, France's greatest military hero and former emperor. Unfortunately, he wouldn't stay in power long enough to see the plan all the way through, though. In 1848, eight years after bringing home Napoleon, Louis-Philippe was deposed in the Third French Revolution. This one ended up briefly with the Republic, the Second Republic, under Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon's nephew, and the same Bonaparte that had been trying all along to get on the throne. Predictably, a few years later, Louis-Napoleon opted for the coup d'etat route and became Emperor Napoleon III in 1852. Finally, a few more years later, in 1861, Napoleon I was laid to rest in his final spot by his nephew, the new emperor. Intriguingly, it was not a big state affair, but was very quietly attended only by the imperial family and some government officials. 
This was possibly partially due to a funding issue as the current emperor was busy spending a lot of money revamping Paris with Haussmann, boosting the French economy and French culture, and doing, you know, as emperors do, spending a lot of cash. He was also often negatively publicly compared with his famous uncle, so he may have been trying to avoid any more negative press and negative comparisons. Like, Napoleon I was, you know, a rock star, and you're... you're not. If you've been doing the math while we've gone along, then you've figured out that fact number five is that it took 20 years to prepare Napoleon's final resting place. Laying Napoleon to rest involved two major projects. The Dome des Invalides Chapel had to be prepared for its most important resident, and that gigantic tomb had to be designed and constructed. Those ended up taking two decades. For the chapel, they had to create a suitable new crypt. It was to be monumental, but still fit within the confines of the chapel. So the floor had to go, they installed a new staircase for public access, and they had to decorate the gorgeous ambulatory space where the gigantic tomb would go. Now it allows us to both gaze upon Napoleon in reflection from above and awe from below, while safely keeping him contained. There is definitely this theme of contain the little corporal throughout his burials. One interesting point I came across in my research was an analysis by author Michael Paul Driscoll on the design of the monument. Unlike many monuments to great men, which are overtly masculine and frequently phallic like the Washington Monument in D.C., Napoleon's monument is the opposite. It could, quote, be construed as a sign of castration or absence of the fabled phallic signifier. I personally agree that this is not an overtly phallic monument, and it has an almost womb-like vibe if we stick with a gendered description of the space. Knowing that part of the intention of putting the monument at Les Invalides was to honor Napoleon without promoting Napoleon's imperial intentions, was this monumental emasculation a deliberate or subconscious decision by the design team? Or were they intending to convey that Napoleon, in a way, is the source for modern Europe, both mother and father? Or were they just trying to fit an important monument into a confined space and were just making do? It's up to you, I think. Do you find Napoleon's Krypton tomb to be gendered in any way? Or is it just suitably imperial? Were you surprised when you first discovered that he's buried in that sort of underground crypt and not in some sort of magnificent huge monument. The plan decor changed a number of times throughout the different regimes and different styles, honestly decor styles, and what we see now was one emperor paying homage to another. But that emperor also didn't change tack at any point and move the monument, but kept it suitably tucked away in a building. And if you're wondering where Napoleon was while all of this was going down, well, he was nearby in the Chapel Saint-Jerome, which is part of the larger church complex within Les Avalides. So he was on site, just not yet in his giant tomb. And now we're at the final fact. Fact number six. Napoleon is, in fact, in Napoleon's tomb. Now we have Napoleon safely nestled in his tomb, resting at last. Or do we? There is a conspiracy theory that Napoleon is not actually in his tomb. There are two branches of this theory. 
both claim that the British stole his body and laid it to rest in Westminster Abbey in an unmarked grave. He was buried on British-held St. Helena, after all. Then this is where the theories split. One is that Napoleon's tomb is actually empty, there's nobody in it, and one is that the British replaced his body with his valet or butler who had predeceased him by three years, which means that either everyone is lying that he was wearing that uniform and looked exactly like Napoleon, or they had put a new uniform on a three-year-old corpse. Ugh. As with all conspiracy theories of this nature, they both rely on a combination of inconsistent source information which is actually very common before we had the ability to document every second of our lives. And there was some pretty creative twisting of the facts. But some version of this rumor has been around since the 19th century, so it has some staying power for sure. The British deny it, the French government denies it, and frankly, common sense denies it as well. There have been many counter-arguments against the theories. I'll link to one in the show notes so you can kind of get a sense. But I don't think that this conspiracy theory will be going away anytime soon. There is, of course, one possible way to put an end to the questions. If they open the tomb and they were able to, one, see that there's a body there, and this could be done possibly through other technology, though I think the lead coffins would make that difficult. And two, if there's enough suitable remains to perform a DNA test against the surviving members of the Bonaparte family, we could prove potentially that it was Bonaparte that's in there. But so far, the government and the Bonaparte family have declined to have the remains examined or tested. And the stakes in this are quite high. So I doubt that this will be disproven definitively within our lifetime. And the conspiracy theorists will just come up with a new theory anyway. So I'm not sure it's even worth the bother. So the mystery will just have to remain a logically disproven mystery. Now that you've learned all the interesting facts about the tomb, if you'd like to go see it for yourself, you can go to Les Invalides and check him out. It is well worth the visit, and not just for Napoleon and all of the other military greats that are buried with them, but for the entire Les Invalides complex, which includes the most excellent Musée de l'Armée and such a gorgeous building too. Like, I can't, it's gorgeous. I can't describe it. You have to see it, really. It is covered by the Museum Pass and will be part of the upcoming Nuit Blanche in October, the annual uh, event where you can access the Invalides and a number of other museums and cultural events for free. I went a few years ago and they actually had Napoleon's tomb blocked off, unfortunately, and frustratingly for me, but walking around the building at night was so incredibly evocative and parts of the Musée, the Musée de l'Armée were open. So this is basically sort of a taste of the building. So if you do want the, the full meal deal, you'll want to go during the day, when it's during its normal operating hours. You can also visit the Arc de Triomphe, uh, which was built to honor Napoleon's many triumphs. It was actually started by Napoleon, but not finished before he was deposed. And it was an important part of his funeral procession in 1840. It's also available to visitors and is also part of the museum pass. Make sure that you book in advance for that one. I think it's still time tickets, but check the website to confirm. And if you're feeling particularly adventurous, you can head on over to the island of St. Helena. The French government now owns the house where Napoleon died 
and uh, the area of his original tomb as well. So they're historic monuments managed by the French government on an island that is not owned by France. Confusing and kind of cool. Thank you for joining me on this exploration of Napoleon's tomb. To go deeper into this episode, read the blog and explore more resources, make sure to check out the website at parisgumby.com. If you would like to support my own ambitious conquest of Parisian information, please check out the support options in the show notes. And if you loved what you heard, please subscribe or leave a comment. It really does help bring PGB to the masses. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day. A bientôt.